Pontifacts. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 55, Pope John. Oh, we've reached a John. This is the first of the most boring papal name ever, and the most used papal name of all time, too. So, technically at the time it was Johannes, but it's John. He's Pope John I. So, because it is the most overused papal name, Dave from the Siecla podcast suggested that we should choose a nickname for them as we go so that, you know, when we're dealing with John the 23rd at some point, they at least have some sort of marked characteristic. So if you'd like to pick a random nickname for this John, you're more than welcome to do that. Oh, a random nickname? Hang on. Let's do it this way. <laughs> All right. So um, I have... A D&D book in front of me. Okay. It's um all about boats, and there's a chart in here about <laughs> crew names. Let me find it. Uh, so we're going to random roll some crew names. <laughs> we're going to use this every time now, so you have to make sure you give me the name of the book so that I write it down. Um, it's the Ghosts of Saltmarsh book. Roll a D20 for me, Brie. I will roll you a d20, because I have one now. I need you to do it twice and tell me the number. Uh, the first one's a six. Okay. And then a ten. So his name is Blue Hook. Blue Hook. <laughs> okay. So this is Pope John the First, a.k.a. Blue Hook. That's what we're going with from now on. They're all going to have excellent nicknames. So... John, aka Blue Hook. Let's let's jump into his life story. We'll see if it lives up to that whole piratey feel. So, John was born in either Siena or Chiusdino in Tuscany, and he was the son of Constantius. Not much else is known about his early life or exactly when he entered the church, but we do know that he was serving as a deacon by 498 when Symmachus was elected to be pope, because. John was known to be a Laurentian supporter. Oh. Yeah, he was on the side of the antipope. Well, he must have got in, well, they said that everybody liked, everybody liked Hormistus, so Mm -hmm. they all went back to being what they were before. Exactly. But we do know, like, this is not just speculation, we do know that he was a supporter of Laurentius, and we know this because of a document that he wrote to Pope Symmachus in 506, where he confesses the error of his ways and was now begging for forgiveness. So he actually switches over before Hormistus. He actually comes back to the fold once Symmachus is declared the true and rightful Pope. In this letter, he condemns Laurentius and the apostolic visitor, Peter of Altinum, and he wishes to be brought back into communion. This is, remember, 506 is when Theoderic finally comes around and orders the Laurentians to cede control. So whether or not he's doing it because he wants to or because he feels like he should, it, it's being done. It's the last possible moment for him to reconcile. Although it has this nice personal touch of a, an apology letter. So, you know, maybe it, it probably wasn't super personally motivated at the time. Blue Hook is is not quite sure how he feels about this. 
It's also possible that he is the Deacon John, in quotations, that signed the actas of the Roman synods of 499 and 502, since at the time, Rome only had seven deacons during the synods, and he was most likely the only John, because unlike today, that was not a super, super common name. Now, we can't be 100% certain about this, but this is the argument that historians John Moorhead in his book The Last Years of Theoderic and E.K. Rand, and this has generally been accepted as very likely, so maybe he appears in some documents from the synods. The only other thing that we know about him is that he was a good friend of Beotheus, who was a famed Christian philosopher and senator who will later become a saint. And we know this because three of Beotheus's major religious philosophical treatises were dedicated to John when he was still Deacon John. This relationship's going to come up again later, but just as a side note, because we have time for it, Beotheus came back into church prominence about 11 years ago when Pope Benedict XVI gave a general audience address on Beotheus and another church figure called Cassiodorus. And if you want to read Pope Benedict's general audience on Beotheus from so long ago, I have it in the show notes. But that's all we know about him before he was Pope. And we know that he was elected to the papacy on August 13th of 523. And by all accounts at this point, he was a very old and frail man. There isn't any indication that he was so old that he didn't want to accept the papacy, but it's important for us to understand that he was not a spring chicken pope, so keep that in mind. It will become important. But before we get to why that's important, let's recap a couple focal points about what's going on in the secular world with the empire and the Ostrogothic kingdom and everything else that's been going on because, you know, we've been focusing on church chaos for a while. So King Theoderic is still in control of Italy and Rome, and he was an Arian Christian, but unlike Odoacer, he had tolerated Orthodox Christianity and worked in cooperation with the Catholic Church in Rome on and off, so the structures had pretty much remained the same. The East is still leaning Monophysitic, both imperially and in the Church during the Acacian Schism and the embrace of the Henoticon. And just recently, the new emperor, Justin I, was the first Orthodox emperor to rule the empire in almost 50 years. And now that the Acacian Schism is resolved, things in the East are looking a little more Orthodox and relationships are starting to build. But this makes Theoderic a little apprehensive. You know, it's not generally in his best interest for Rome to have this growing positive relationship with the empire again. They're obviously the biggest threat to his kingdom, considering that the East is nowhere near crumbling like the West was. Yet, anyways, I mean, it's a bit of a way off, but right now they're looking pretty hot and sassy, and he's sitting over there with a still relatively newly conquered Italy. And now the church and the empire are starting to become friends again. Theoderic's apprehension continues to grow, particularly in 523, when Emperor Justin issues a new edict imposing a very strict suppression of Arianism. So he orders the seizure of all the church spaces that they occupy, and 
issues severe punishments for any found heretics. And remember, Theoderic is an Arian, and so he's not at all comfortable with watching this happen. And then he notices that the Roman Senate, under him, is corresponding very positively with Constantinople. And now that the schism is over and there's a Catholic emperor, they're looking cozier and cozier. Treasonous, even. So, alarm bells start going off in the king's head. So initially, he threatens to go to war with Justin, but this idea only seemed to be supported by the Arians in the East who were now facing persecution, so it's not super well received locally. The rest of his kingdom isn't so keen to, you know, go to war with someone just because you're feeling a little bit threatened. So Theoderic decides that maybe he should try negotiation instead on behalf of the Arians. And, you know, since the church was doing so well with the empire right now, why not use them? You know, they'd get a positive response. So he gets together five bishops. Ecclesius of Ravenna, Eusebius of Phanum Fortunae, we haven't had a Eusebius in a while, Sabinus of Campania, and two others who aren't named, and four senators, Flavius Theodorus, Importunus, and two men both called Egyptus, and to lead them all in their envoy to the empire, who better but the new pope? So he informs Pope Bluehook, old and frail Pope Bluehook, that this is now what is expected of him. You are going to go to the empire and act as my emissary. Blue Hook is horrified. He is far too old. He will not take the journey well. And hang on a sec, did you just ask me to go and negotiate for the Aryans? No way. He he's not having any of it. I I have to now go to speak to the emperor on behalf of the heretics that we had our first ever ecumenical council of the church over to condemn not having it. He protests and tries to gently decline the king's request. And I can imagine that the next bit happened with Theoderic staring Pope John straight in the face and letting him know that, no, you're going. And moreover, if you fail, Theoderic is going to retaliate against all the anti-Arians in the West. So that nice church that seems to finally have gotten its together He's going to come down hard against all of them if John fails. So the stakes are pretty high. So John must go. And go he does on the near 1,300-mile journey, despite his, quote, large and venerable retinue, was arduous and absolutely exhausting. The Liber Pontificalis says that he, quote, set forth and journeyed with weeping and lamentation. And the whole way that he's going, he's worrying about the precarious position that he's in. He's being sent to negotiate on behalf of the Arians, a heretical sect that the church was vehemently against. But if he didn't, the entirety of the Orthodox West is going to be in imminent danger. So he determined his strategy. He would speak to the emperor and request discretion and maybe mercy or an end to active persecution. But he couldn't, in good conscience, push for all the things that Theoderic wanted, like 
arguing that any Aryans who had converted to Catholicism should be restored to Arianism, or that Arian Christians should be allowed to keep their place within church structures as bishops or priests or deacons. Obviously, the head of the Orthodox Church isn't going to advocate for those things. Peace and mercy is one thing, but favoring heresy is another. So, he makes it, and when John arrived in Constantinople, the welcome he received was far warmer than what he'd had with the king in his own country. People come out in droves to see the Pope at the 12th milestone of the city, and they make a procession of it, because he's the first Pope to visit Constantinople ever, and since they were now reconciled with communion, they were extremely excited to see the head of the church there. And the emperor was just as inviting. You know, he symbolically prostrated himself before the Pope, and he readily spoke with him about the requests that he brought. We don't know a whole lot about these negotiations themselves, but the end result was that Justin agreed to all of the Pope's requests to ease up on Arian persecution, but not to restore converted Arians. And all of the Eastern bishops make a public declaration of reconciliation and dedication to the Pope. So as far as the Pope goes, this meeting is a total success. He's basically accomplished what King Theoderic wants. He has a great relationship with the Orthodox Emperor in the East. And the whole of the city has come out to make sure that it is very, very clear that the Acacian Schism is over and everyone's excited about the Pope again. And then, because it was just about time for Easter, the Pope decided to use the opportunity for a symbolic gesture of papal primacy. So, by invoking his rights over the whole of the Church, he decided that he would preside over the Easter Mass and officiations instead of the Bishop of Constantinople, Epiphanes. And there seems to be no opposition to this because John conducts the Latin Easter services in the Church of Sancta Sophia, in a ceremony where he was seated in a throne that was placed higher than that of Justin's. And then, as part of the service, he crowned the Emperor Justin with the honorary Easter crown. So you can see this is a perfect moment for symbolism here. You know, Justin's rule is now blessed and bestowed by the Pope, and the Pope has invoked his papal primacy over all bishops, even the Bishop of Constantinople, to go ahead and give the services instead. Huge successes all around. It's all really, really good. This is awesome. He is feeling great. And then right after the Easter services, John heads back towards Ravenna to bring Theoderic the good news. Everything went really, really, really well. Unfortunately, while Pope John was having success in Constantinople, King Theoderic was descending into a full-on paranoid grump-ass mode. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. He was more and more suspicious every day after the pro-Byzantine sentiment of the Senate, and he had ordered the death of his father-in-law, Symmachus, and John's friend, that Senator Beotheus, on charges of treason. He ordered their deaths on October 23rd, 524. So, even though John was doing exactly what the king forced him to do, Theoderic is furious. 
and pretty jealous when he heard how well things are going and what a positive welcoming reception that John had received. So he concluded that the only logical explanation was that they must be plotting against him. The only reason this went so well is they must they must have a scheme. So when John stopped in in Ravenna to meet with the king and inform him of all the great progress that was made, he was immediately arrested and imprisoned and deprived of food. And according to Gregory of Tours, Theoderic said, quote, I will force you not to dare to complain any more against my religion. He's too old for that. And thank you to Derek from the Hellenistic Age podcast for getting me a wonderful, wonderful copy of Gregory of Tours' Glory of the Martyrs for that quote. We're going to come back to Gregory of Tours so much when we get to the Middle Ages, and he is, he is the new Liber Pontificalis coming up. Fantastic. Perfect. Yeah. So he's not doing well. He's already exhausted from the super long and arduous journey that he's just made twice. And now he's been arrested and thrown in jail and starved by a paranoid king. So he died on May 18th of 526 from a combination of exhaustion, poor treatment, imprisonment, and starvation. He was temporarily buried where he died in Ravenna, but on May 27th, the Pope's body was exhumed and brought back to Rome, where it was buried in the nave of St. Peter's with an epitaph that read, Victim for Christ. I actually have the whole of his epitaph here from Wendy J. Reardon's book, The Death of the Popes, Comprehensive Accounts, Including Funerals, Burial Places, and Epitaphs. Oh yeah, you were having a time about that book earlier. Uh, I can't wait to get this book, but I have to wait till our Patreon funds are no longer in limbo. So, limbo. It says, whoever hastens to strife towards eternal life seeks the way permitted to the pious. The footpath, having been prepared before by the heavenly powers, the trusting priest enters by his merit. He was poor, thus living in even more pleasing circumstances. He died a high priest of the Lord, a prostrate sacrifice of Christ, so that he might always be able to worship God. Thus was this highest pontiff pleasing to God. So very nice epitaph for this poor man who died starving. We also have one bizarre story for him about his final journey back to Rome from the anonymous Valesianus text, chapter 2, that tells us, quote, when the people were marching before his dead body, suddenly one of the crowd was possessed by a devil and fell down. But when they had come with the coffin in which John was carried to the place where the stricken man lay, he suddenly got up, sound and well, and took his place in front of the funeral procession. When the people and the senators beheld this, they began to take relics from the Pope's garments. Then the body was escorted out of the city, attended by the great rejoicing of the people. Miracles. That's him. I mean, we've already covered his death. There are a couple more things that the Liber Pontificalis wanted the world to know that John had done. So we're just going to cover those very quickly to give him his due. He repaired holy cemeteries like the Cemetery of Nereus and Achilles on the Via Ardeatina, the Cemetery of Felix and Adocius, and the Cemetery of Priscilla. And that's pretty much it. There are two letters that were originally thought to have been written by John to the bishops of Italy and one to the Archbishop Zacharias, but both of those letters now were not thought to be genuine, so 
And one other source I read credits John with, quote, Introducing the Alexandrian computation of the date of Easter to the West, but uh, that is not listed anywhere else or even vaguely mentioned, so we're not going to put any stead into that. That's the first Pope John. Hmm. Pope Blue Hook. Blue Hook died Poor guy. of starvation. Yeah. He probably got scurvy. He probably did get scurvy among a, a, a lot of other deficiencies that were coming his way. I feel bad for him. So now it's time to rate him. Papatum infallium. Well, he was a martyr. So he he was probably trying to do the right thing while protecting orthodoxy. He had a very positive reception from the orthodox emperor in the east. He got everyone in Constantinople very excited about seeing him. He did a beautiful symbolic job of having that moment of papal primacy. But that's about it. That's all he's got. What do you want to give him? I can't give him a lot. It's not a lot. A three. A three is... uh, Okay, if you're going to give him a three, I'm going to give him a one. Okay. I don't want to be mean to him. He died so poorly. He did, and it's very unfortunate. But I think a four adequately represents the fact that he tried to go and do this thing, and he was received very well. It just blew up in his face. So he didn't have time to do much else. Four is fair. Fructus prohibitum. You know, we might have been able to give him something in this category if he really had been plotting with Justin against Theoderic, but he wasn't. So it has to be a zero. Seculari impactum. He crowned the emperor. Symbolically, but clearly this had an impact for the secular and church relationships with the empire. But, you know, church relationships with the kingdom then went downhill, so not very good. Those things kind of balance each other out. And by the by, King Theoderic dies just a few months after John does. And the Liber Pontificalis also says that he was struck down by divine power and perished. And some translations say Thunderbolt again. So God was pulling some serious Zeus moves in the 5th century. He struck down Anastasius, the Pope, Anastasius, the Emperor, and now King Theoderic. So just, uh, he's slapping people with lightning bolts. I would like to see the weather patterns for this year. Honestly. Well, I mean, that would have been interesting. I just think he was feeling particularly smitey in the 5th century. Well, you know, sometimes, like, Africa gets really lightning-y periodically. It's true. Anywhere in the Mediterranean knows about that. And, you know, that is kind of that region. But yeah. The only other version, uh, Gregory of Tours says that Theoderic died of great wounds, but doesn't specify what they are, so... Other than that, he may have secured some less persecution for the Arians, who are heretics and therefore secular by church standards. So it's a nice thing to do for any one of that fellow Christian status. So we might want to give him a couple points for reducing persecution. But that's about it. Okay. You need me to raid him. I do. Oh, jeez. You know, you just... A two. A two. Okay, I am going to say that his good relationships with the Empire, but his bad relationships with the Ostrogothic Kingdom, 
kind of balance each other out. So I'm only going to give him a one on top of this for the whole reducing persecution thing. So he gets a three. I'm having so much trouble rating this man. I know. I know. He's kind of meh. He probably would have been less meh if he didn't have to travel 2,600 miles as an old man. So, yeah. Fossium Sanctus. So the image we normally rate him on, I am going to send you that. But the version we have, there's something really, really skewed about the color. And I'm not the only person who thinks so, because someone has taken that image and then repainted it and recolorized it in a very awkward way. Did they do it like that Jesus that turned into a lion, a lump lion? Oh my god, it's not as bad as Eke Homo, but it's... But yeah, it's not that bad, but it is, like, you can tell they are definitely the same image, but it has also been altered. So I'm going to send you both of these at the same time. There you go. Okay. They made some choices. (laughs) They did. They made some choices. I am particularly a fan on both images that he's got really wingy hair. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. He took a straightening iron through there and just gave it the little flippy at the end. Oh, he looks yeah. like he could take off with those. The thing is, like, the first one, he's he's old, right? He is mm-hmm. old. The second one looks like it got shoved into, like, the Kardashian filter. Like, gone are his <laughs> wrinkles. Gone is his tired, gaunt eyes. His lips are fuller. His beard is more luscious. He definitely has those luscious Linus lips, you know, that from our very first early, early Pope number two, he's got that patron saint of chapstick thing going on. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe the first one is him in life when he is being martyred and the second one is him when he has been canonized and is a saint and no longer has to suffer. Now, here's the other thing about his images. A lot of them, generally, if we look at other images of him, he's literally, like, generally staring through bars. Oh, that's so sad! Yeah, like, all of his medieval images are of him, like, staring through bars while he's in prison, usually with, like, a deacon and a subdeacon. And I'm gonna send you that image as well, but for that reason, I think the first image in all its haggard discoloration is better, and I... I want to rate based on that. So I'm going to give him, I'm going to give him like a five. Oh yeah, I got like a two in me. He looks like he's got bugs on him. Like, yeah, he does look like he has bugs on him, but that, that has more to do with the discoloration, not his prison stay. He might have bugs on him. He could have. The other image, the one that has been colorized and stuff, definitely is him before the starvation, because there is an extra five, ten pounds on that man, for sure. Oh, yeah. At least. Yep. So, uh, that will, if you're giving him a two, that will give him a total 1.75 when we calculate it out. Now, here is the image, the medieval image of him in prison. There it is. That looks like a Three Stooges poster. It kind of does, yeah. It's it's not great, but it's definitely got that straight-up medieval image look about it. We also have one more to look at, and this is him meeting with Justin, the emperor. And in this one, 
if we were rating on this one, he'd be getting some serious point because this dude is majestic. Oh, he really is. Let's talk about that prison for a minute. Like, you could just leave. Yeah, I know, right? The bars are, are not not very uh, small. You could just... You know what it is? It's it's the halos. The halos are clearly getting them stuck. Yeah, so... But this second one, this is definitely significantly more impressive as an image. It's obviously apocryphal. He's wearing a papal tiara. That is not a thing they have yet. That guy in the back looks... He's got that dumb one-punch man face on. <laughs> the little one? No, the the one directly behind him. You know what? Do you know what face I mean? Yeah, I do. Jordan has watched the One Punch Man thing. He makes that face all the time. Everyone in this image, except for the Pope, has a terrible face. Like, look at that little slouchy child. Is that a slouchy child or an old woman? That's a super tiny old woman. <laughs> when you get old, you shrink. My grandma was in, like, teenage dresses at 90. Like, she was wearing, like, dresses made for 12-year-olds. Well, I mean, it's it's up to us. Is that an old woman behind old Blue Hook, or is that a child? It's a really wrinkly old child. There's not really any wrinkles on that child. They got fat cheeks, man. Jolly child. Yeah, and then the one behind Justin looks real angry, too. He does. In my mind, knowing the history, because he looks so grumpy, I want to say that it's Justinian, who is... The nephew of Justin, and we will be dealing with Justinian a lot very soon. It suits my headcanon. There's a guy with a cactus? What is he doing? <laughs> Fry, you're a Catholic. Come on. It's probably a palm, but it's definitely too fat. <laughs> it is It is definitely a palm frond for the martyr death. It's fat. It's the fattest palm frond I have ever seen. I mean, that would be a very millennial way to celebrate, like, martyrdom, is, is just to have a bunch of suckies and cacti. <laughs> I'm glad we've rated him before we've looked at these images, as always. Oh, and then, do you want to see another bald Colin mockery? There it is. <laughs> He's just, you know, forever. I'm sorry, Colin mockery. I think he would love it, seriously. He'd be like, great, I look like... 25 Pope Man. Maybe. I love it. No, I know that Colin Mockery is not a time traveler, but. Who says he isn't, though? I'm just saying, maybe he sat in for this drawing man. He's like, I need you to face a <laughs> different way. Every, like, five months, the guy doesn't recognize that it's the same person. Oh, it's the new Pope. I better check that out. Tempus Pontificus. So, August 13th, 523 to May 18th of 526, three years is a score of 0 0.75. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do, 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 do. Yes, he's definitely a saint. His feast day is May 18th, although before the reformation of the martyrology, it was occasionally cited as May 27th, which was the date of his exhumation. And he is revered as a martyr, but not listed as a patron saint. He's not a patron saint. He's not. I mean, he gets some additional veneration in Ravenna and in Tuscany, but he's not the patron saint of Siena because Catherine. So, yeah, 
he doesn't get to be a patron saint until now. So, Pope Blue Hook, patron saint of... That real wishy-washy feeling of, you know, like, meh, but as a feeling. The patron saint of meh? Okay. All right. Poor John. He's just, he has not done particularly well here. Even his total score is is a very sad 10.5. He's in 46th place out of 55 popes. Look, he's not last. He is not last. He is a saint. Now, a lot of them coming up will not be. He definitely, he is very, very well revered. Like, very well revered for doing the right thing, just not quite getting there. So, I feel like I just answered this question, but do you think he's popey enough and pizzazzy enough for a papal bull? No. No. No, he's not. Not even a meh, just no. Yeah, he's well revered, but he doesn't quite make it. Again. But that's not all, because we are going to do a very, very brief A Pope Watch. We have not had a Pope Watch in a while. And if you are looking for a, a big old, like, Pope Watch where we cover a whole bunch of stuff about the news, this is not that. Because I just want to tell you that Pope Francis has launched the Pope Francis hospital ship. What is, what? It's a boat? It's literally a ship that is a hospital, and it is the Pope Francis hospital ship. That is what it's called. That is what it says on it. What's it for? Okay, so this is where the actual little details of the story comes on. This is a hospital ship that is bringing the word of God and healthcare to the Amazon region of the Archdiocese of Belém in Brazil. So this is, you know how they've been talking recently about whole, that whole Amazon space where there's a lack of priests and they were talking about potentially limitedly ordaining married men to kind of fit some of that sacrament. This ship is going to that area to bring health care and support and the word of God. And it is, yeah. So I, I'm not going to get into a bunch of detail. There isn't a whole lot yet because it was only launched like two days ago. But Pope Francis hospital ship is something that I needed to share with the world. So so it's going to run over, like, crocodiles? <laughs> I mean, I hadn't considered that as a thing that it will do, but it will probably also do that. Cut up some capybara. What else lives down there? Piranhas? <laughs> a lot of things that will kill you. And remind me later to tell you the story about the woman I know whose father was pretty much, like, eaten alive by... Or not eaten alive, but, um, like definitely chomped on by some crocodiles as a child. Don't do that. Don't go near water where crocodiles chomp. Yeah, he definitely lived in the Amazon as, like, a, like a tribal boy and, and definitely, like, got chomped real bad, like, right down the middle of his body. So that was Ooh. a thing. Look, I just told you the story. <laughs> the story is done. Yeah, well, that happened, and then he was, like, he was, like, alone with his brother in in, like, the river area, so he had to walk, like, a long ways to get help while bleeding out. So that's the thing. Yeah, that'll that'll happen. I'm trying to I'm looking I'm looking at how big that boat is and then I'm looking at how big the rivers are and it only looks like it's going to fit some places. 
Yeah, but it's definitely going to bring a lot of help that hasn't been accessible in that area. And the church is definitely giving Brazil and that area of Belém a lot of attention right now to try and expand its mission work there. So so anytime that there is, you know, I'm a Canadian, anytime that there's healthcare going on in the world, I'm like, woohoo! So there you go. Pope Francis, hospital ship. That's something. Now we have thank yous to make. First of all, we have a patron to absolve of their temporal sins. So thank you to Jody Webb. Ego te absolvo. We also need to thank Rob from Totalis Rankium for updating our scorecards for all of our popes up until Hormistus. So thank you so much for that. They are so awesome. I have a feeling we are making his job more difficult by giving them names like Blue Hook now, but <laughs> that's a thing that has happened, and I am not sorry for it. But thank you so much, Rob. You are the best for doing that. I also would like to thank Dave Montgomery from the Siecla podcast, not only for suggesting that we give nicknames. He made some graphs for us that are really, really interesting. It actually shows all of our papal bull winners, and it graphs them by, like, what category they did the best in. You can see how their scores break down, what category we tend to give the most points in. And then he also did an alternative graph where you can see how our scores would be affected if we took points away for Fructus Prohibitum and how that would change their rankings. They're just really, really cool to look at. We are definitely going to put them up on our website when we get a chance. Thank you, Dave, for that. Super fun. And then I also would like to thank Jessica Enns, who was able to provide some more information for us from the Papal Genealogy book that we now have a copy of. Thanks to Carlos. Thank you so much. But she got it before we actually have the hard copy in hand and was able to send me a bunch of scans to look at the pages for the popes that we'll be covering before I have the hard copy. So thank you for that. You rock the best. So thank you so much. And also, while we're at it, you guys have really, really pulled through on that call to action to leave some reviews for us. You have no idea how much of a difference that is making. We are charting like crazy compared to where we were before those reviews started coming in. So thank you so much. That helps so much. And then it helps our downloads and we get more visible. Today, we almost hit a thousand downloads in one day. So yeah, we're getting real close to that bump. Oh, it was so close. If the stats didn't time out when they did, we would have hit it a hundred percent because we've already gone past it. So that was uh, my fault for uploading it late. <laughs> we admit to nothing. With that, we can say thank you so much and goodbye. Bye. Bye.